0: This is an audio only version of a then and now video. To see the full video, search then and now on YouTube. Enjoy. Why, Adorno and Horkheimer ask, is mankind, instead of entering into a truly human condition, sinking into a new kind of barbarism? How has the Enlightenment gone wrong? And why, with all of our scientific progress, secularism, and emphasis on human rights, have we just emerged out of decades of catastrophic murder and war? Their answer? that reason itself has a dark side. Enlightenment, man's use of his own reason, was meant to be the antidote to myth, to religion, to unjust authority, phenomena that men followed blindly. But for Adorno and Horkheimer, myth is already enlightenment, and enlightenment reverts to mythology. What does this mean According to James Bradley, for Adorno and Horkheimer, they see enlightenment as subject throughout history to a dialectic wherein it all too easily gives itself an absolute status over and against its objects, thereby constantly collapsing into new forms of the very conditions of primeval repression which it earlier set out to overcome. I think we can best understand their claim by looking at it thematically through a number of concepts. The first is domination. We should think of a dialectical relationship between enlightenment, the use of our own reason, and domination. So what is domination? They say, domination is in effect whenever the individual's goals and purposes and the means of striving for and attaining them are prescribed to him and performed by him. Domination can be exercised by men, by nature, by things. It can also be internal, exercised by the individual on himself and appear in the form of autonomy. Mythology, in the form of, say, Christian religion, might be seen as a form of domination. A flood too might be seen as a form of domination or a political system. Some might say that the Christian doctrine is more of a guidebook than a number of rules that are meant to dominate you. Either way, prescribed to you is a correct way of doing something that you're meant to conform to. This is what they mean by domination. The book might be thought of as a history of domination, of how enlightenment becomes domination. Enlightenment meant installing men as their own masters. Kant wrote in 1784, five years before the French Revolution and potentially year zero of the Enlightenment, that, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. This immaturity is self-imposed when its cause lies not in lack of understanding, but in lack of resolve and courage to use it without guidance from another. Saper orde, dare to know, have courage to use your own understanding. That is the motto of the enlightenment. Enlightenment then meant dispelling myths and superstition, unjust laws laid down by corrupt men using God as their justification enlightenment meant removing each man's blindfold, encouraging him to use his own rational mind. Kant argued that men had an innate capability for reason. But what is reason? If men are individuals, is each man's reason different? Or do we all have the possibility to understand a shared reason? Is there a universal, transcendental, homogenous reason that's greater than any one man? The rules of mathematics, physics, and physiology say. These aren't individual. They're universal and undeniable. For Kant and Hegel, men had the faculties to be reasonable, to think logically, But reason was larger than any single man. It was the unity of all logic, all nature, in a systematisation, a single governing principle, a schema, a blueprint. For Hegel, we would gradually work towards this, and human reason would synthesise. As Hegel saw, if you had individual men and universal reason, this would lead to a dialectic, a relationship between two poles. There is the individual, with bones and flesh and desires and needs, distinct from everything else. Then there's the universal, that which governs and unites all. For Adorno and Horkheimer, this shows that there are at least two types of reason in men, individual reason and collective reason. They write, the transcendental supra-individual self compromises the idea of a free human social life in which men organise themselves as the universal subject and overcome the conflict between pure and empirical reason in the conscious solidarity of the whole. This represents the idea of true universality, utopia. At the same time, however, reason constitutes the court of judgment of calculation which adjusts the world for the ends of self-preservation and recognizes no function other than the preparation of the object from mere sensory material in order to make it the material of subjugation. This is a difficult but important quote. One type of reason calculates how to live together as a group reason between men. Another calculates how the individual can use his own surroundings for his own self-preservation. These two types of reason can come into conflict, but which one is more reasonable? What's the rational way to share these four apples? For me to survive? Four for me, none for you. Or would that anger you? Two for me, two for you. Either way, though, the instrumental reason of the Enlightenment sees a neutral world of material objects to be used to further human ends. What matters is how we or I use the apples. They write From now on, matter would at last be mastered without any illusion of ruling or inherent powers, of hidden qualities. For the Enlightenment, whatever does not conform to the rule of computation and utility is suspect. We don't care about anything else about the apple, we just calculate how best to produce and consume them. Everything starts to be calculated in reference to this utility. What combination of apples goes to each store? Which tools are best used for harvesting the apples quickly? Which skills do we need to produce them more efficiently? This combines into a single principle. There is a best way, and it's universal. We should all adhere to it. It dominates us. This is how Adorno and Horkheimer make the provocative claim that enlightenment is totalitarian. Everything must be made to conform to the principle of utility, a unity, a system, a physics. When a system of thoughts, whether it's Christianity, or the best way of producing apples becomes fixed ideas and universal recipes, they lead to the rejection of anything not already analytically assimilated. They write, for the enlightenment, anything which cannot be resolved into numbers and ultimately into one is illusion. Modern positivism consigns it to poetry. The beauty of the apple, the art of the apple, gone. Was the Enlightenment really that special? If Enlightenment is the use of nature for human purposes, didn't this appear before the Enlightenment? Didn't the Enlightenment really precede the Enlightenment? Is the modern Enlightenment part of a longer process? Could magic and myth be a part of this narrative? Why so much grief for me? No man will hurl me down to death against my fate. And fate? No one alive has ever escaped it, neither brave man nor coward. I tell you, it's born with us the day that we are born. What makes mythology and enlightenment the same? Both attempt to naturalise the universal rule attempt to dominate the individual based on an eternal rule of instrumental reason. Even magic was an exchange, a deal with nature, with the gods to preserve man. Think about sacrifice. This was meant to placate the gods with a gift to them in order to secure safe passage or food. Like calculating utility, it involved a sacrifice now for being better off later. The ancient Greeks took this logic and expanded it. In place of the local spirits and demons there appeared heaven and its hierarchy. In place of the invocations of the magician and the tribe, the distinct gradation of sacrifice and the labour of the unfree mediated through the word of command. Magic, sacrifice, that exchange, evolved into mythology, into religion. Take Poseidon, Poseidon, the god of the sea, was Poseidon for all. All must worship him, bestow gifts and sacrifices upon him, if they are to have safe passage across the stormy seas. You talk of Poseidon when you talk about where it's dangerous to sail and where it's not. He represents a kind of instrumental reason. He features largely in the Odyssey. Is it a work of myth or of enlightenment? Written sometime in the 8th century BC, Adorno and Horkheimer call it the basic text of European civilization. As a cultural artifact, it tells us a lot about how the Greeks thought. Homer collates popular Greek myths into one man's story. Adorno and Horkheimer see Odysseus as the proto-bourgeois individual. They write, the contrast between the single surviving ego and the multiplicity of fate reflects the antithesis between enlightenment and myth. Odysseus' journey is the path of the self through myth. His self-preservation takes precedent over the consuming power of the natural world, often described metaphorically as the gods. Poseidon, the god of the sea, Zeus, the god of lightning, Aphrodite, the goddess of love. They are things that have domination over us, they represented something outside of human control, something that affects humans. They write, all the adventures Odysseus survives are dangerous temptations deflecting the self from the path of its logic. Odysseus must forge a path between the gods and nature's will and his own desire for self-preservation on his journey home. And he's a cunning figure, rationally working out what belongs to nature, what he cannot manipulate and must align himself to, and what he can use, what he can make use of to get by. He foreshadows in many ways the bourgeois man of the Enlightenment. Take his encounter with the sirens, creatures whose beautiful singing would draw sailors towards the rocks to shipwreck them. Odysseus is too curious about the siren's call, but he is also cunning. He orders his men to plug their ears with beeswax and to tie him to the mast. The men row forward, oblivious to the siren's call. Like proletariat workers, they must ignore their desires and keep rowing. The master, bourgeois man, must listen to nature's call to work out what's logical, what's reasonable, what can be instrumentally used. They write, The formula for Odysseus's cunning is that the detached instrumental mind, by submissively embracing nature, renders to nature what's hers and thereby cheats her. The mythical monsters, under whose power he falls, represent, as it were, petrified contracts and legal claims dating from primeval time. Or take his encounter with the monsters Scylla and Charybdis. They live on either side of the Strait of Messina. One represents rocks jutting from the water, the other a whirlpool. Passers through must choose between the two. Odysseus is advised that if he passes by Scylla, he would lose only a few men instead of his entire ship. Calculation, instrumental reason, enlightenment. The myth represents necessity the power of the currents and the danger through this route. And nature has a right, a legal claim on this. No man can avoid it. In myth, then, they see the codifying, the describing, the marking of both the predictable elements and the unpredictable elements in nature. Is this not reason? Is this not a practice not much different from the scientific one of modernity? In the Marquis de Sade, Adorno and Horkheimer see individual desire. That too can be thought of logically and reasonably. The self-preservation of passion, desire. De Sade is the writer of impulse, of individual desire, of the person's libidinal passions. He who wants something can work out logically how to get it. For Adorno and Horkheimer, de work represents the embodiment of Enlightenment values about the sanctity of the individual's needs and desires. The work of the Marquis de Sade, they write mockingly, exhibits understanding without direction from another, that is to say, the bourgeois subject freed from all tutelage. They discuss de Sade's book Juliet. Juliet teaches as follows on the self-discipline of the criminal. First, reflect on your plan for several days in advance. Consider all its consequences, paying attention to what can be useful to you and what might possibly betray you. Weigh these things just as soberly as if you were sure to be discovered. Juliet loves science. She hates God and anything else she deems irrational. A dead God, she says of Christ, nothing is more comical than this nonsensical combination of words from the catholic dictionary. God which means eternal, death which means not eternal, idiotic christians, what do you intend to do with your dead god? Instead, preserve your desire, work out what you want, calculate how to get it. It's the Nietzschean will to power, that morality is actually nothing more than the imposition of the will of the stronger on everyone else, which leads us to totalitarianism. Whether it's the codified myth of Schuyler and Charybdis, the rationality of working out your desire and convincing others to follow it, if objects are valueless, to be used just for the purposes of self-preservation, why would this not apply to people too? repetition and predictability are key to understanding how myth, enlightenment and totalitarianism are linked. The point of myth was to try to understand and codify something that wasn't understood. The point of science, of observing, is to codify something too. Every time you go near that coast you hit rocks. Every time water is placed over fire it boils. The key is repetition and predictability. They write, the principle of imminence, the explanation of every event as repetition, which enlightenment upholds against mythical imagination, is that of myth itself. The arid wisdom which acknowledges nothing new under the sun, because all of the pieces in the meaningless game have been played, and all the great thoughts have been thought. All possible discoveries can be construed in advance. It's about standardization, a key feature of fascism, that everything, everyone, is in its place, repeatable, obedient. You take out one part and you can replace it with another. They write, the more dominant the complex social organism becomes, the less it tolerates interruptions of the ordinary course of life. Today as yesterday, tomorrow as today, everything must follow the same course. If reason is the perfect homogeneity of everyone calculating the universal together, then what's left of the individual? Reason then is totalitarian. The unity of the manipulated collective consists in the negation of each individual and in the scorn poured on the type of society which could make people into individuals. Enlightenment stands in the same relationship to things as the dictator to human beings. This is why Nazis cannot abide any promiscuity. It's the practising of individual, particular, fleeting bodily passions at the expense of the obedience to the single governing total rule. To sum up, we should return to the foundational quote that myth is already enlightenment and enlightenment reverts to myth. It's still a difficult phrase, but it does connect the disparate parts of the argument in some way. Domination, enlightenment, mythology, individual passion, totalitarianism. Simon Jarvis puts it this way, in order to escape the charge that it's merely subjective, thought sets itself the task of replicating what exists with no hidden extras. Thought is to confine itself to the facts which are thus the point at which thought comes to a halt. The question as to whether these facts might change is ruled out by enlightened thought as a pseudo problem. When a person, a storyteller, scientist, a lawmaker, thinks, creates, observes, he describes, he etches in stone, turns it into something that he wants to be accepted. And the more powerful and systematized it becomes, the more it connects to all the other parts, the more weight it bears down, the more it dominates and encourages you to accept it. The Dialectic of Enlightenment is a difficult book. Its style, by design, is fragmentary, sometimes contradictory. Even their intellectual friends complained of its complicated structure. When Horkheimer asked Leo Lowenthal to recommend figures who might provide feedback for them, he replied, referring ironically to the book's pessimism and complexity, that Huxley didn't read German and Joyce was dead. If you like these videos I need your help and here's my request. If you think you get the same value from four of these videos as you do from just one cup of coffee then please consider pledging just a dollar per video, that's three to four dollars per month to keep this channel going. You can even limit your pledge to one dollar a month and if you pledge five dollars I'll add your name to the credits. To those that already support Then and Now, thank you so much, this channel just wouldn't exist without you. You can also hit like, share, follow me on Twitter and Facebook etc. All of these things really contribute to helping Then and Now grow. Thanks for watching and see you next week.